it's something that at this age I'm very comfortable with. It used to be something that I had mm-hmm. to sort of um, not so much overcome, but try to, you know, carve my own uh, uh, place in the world. And I feel like at this age, I'm, I'm, I'm happy opening with this. My father's Pele. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Kelly, please go ahead. My name is Kelly Nascimento. I am uh, from Brazil. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I guess I'll start with, which, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that at this age I'm very comfortable with. It used to be something that I had mm-hmm. to sort of... Um, not so much overcome, but try to, you know, carve my own uh, uh, place in the world. And I feel like at this age, I'm, I'm, I'm happy opening with this. My father's Pele. It's usually why I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an incredible, I'm very proud of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also often what opens doors to allow me to talk about the things that are really important to me and that I'm really passionate about. Grew up in football. Uh, surrounded by by sports and you know and I think not just because of my family but I feel that a lot of uh, well probably because of my family but a lot of my friend almost everyone it, it almost feels like everyone in Brazil is somehow in football somewhere yeah. <laughs> I, I think so you 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 guys could send like five teams to the world yeah Cup, right? exactly <laughs> it feels like yeah exactly it feels like every neighbor everybody was is in somewhere okay. someone in the family if not more um, so that, that's how I grew up. I grew up actually, I moved to New York when I was nine or mm-hmm. eight. My father, I turned nine here. My father came to play for the New York cosmos. Mm-hmm. So we all moved to New York. I am the only one who stayed actually, uh, mm-hmm. eventually not, you know, my mom stayed for a very long time. She left about 20 years ago. Um, my father left first cause they divorced. Uh, my brother left in his teens. My sister was born here and mm-hmm. she grew up here, but now she lives in actually New Orleans. Um, and then my father had other children uh, who are all over. We're all very close, but we're all over the world. What else can I tell you? So did you, I, did you play soccer yourself? Or no, I didn't. I didn't. didn't. So okay. I think I also, so, you know, people always ask this and I always feel like I have to defend it somehow, but I think, <laughs> the t- <laughs> I think times were different and yes, I was a girl and I didn't see any girls playing, but I also firmly believe that when you are meant to do something, mm-hmm. you know, you will or like at least sort of um, you'll, you'll really want to do it, right. You'll crave doing it and you'll find a way, even if you are then frustrated because you can't become professional. So I can't really say that I ever was like, oh, I wish I could do that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't a calling. It didn't feel like, I mean, I love it. I had fun, but there was never a point where I was like, God, if only I was a boy, you know, mm-hmm. um, I know many people do. So I, I know it's a, it's a, it's definitely a, a, a problem and an issue for people and a barrier. But so, yeah, so I didn't play football. I never really 
uh, felt the, the urge to play football. I danced when I was younger. I fenced. Oh, I wow. loved volleyball, you know, but not, you know, today in the United States, when you say I fenced, people think you were like on the Olympic track. No, I fenced in high school as like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a fun uh, you know, way to stay active. I had a lot of fun. I was never on any track for anything. I just enjoyed it. Um, I danced uh, uh, pretty intensively for until I was in my uh, early 30s or, mm-hmm. you know, late 20s, late 20s. Um, just because I love it also, I never really wanted to be a professional dancer. I could always tell that it was a very, you know, um, difficult uh, career, but I was in the arts. I went to art school. I, um, I guess in retrospect today, I could say that I've always been a storyteller. Mm -hmm. I started with photography and uh, graphic design and Mm -hmm. made my way through theater and, uh, and, um, and now film. And, but I think my, my strength is telling stories in, 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 in any way. Mm -hmm. So I feel that that sort of kind of merged into what I do today, which is I help um, organizations and, 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 NGOs and individuals sort of discover their narrative if they, if need be, and if they know their narrative, how to um, best and and, in the most powerful way transmit it. And, and then that, you know, and and in that I do it with, in in a million different ways. I have a very, I have a very un uh, soundbite ish kind of (laughs) life, which is difficult sometimes, but yeah. And I speak and I, I think that, you know, interesting things in my life happened throughout that sort of brought me here, you know, kind of like married my love for arts and my love for, for um, language and mm-hmm. my love for storytelling, you know, and particularly visual storytelling, but today sort of any kind of storytelling, but I do think that visual is my, is my sweet spot. Um, and, and were you professionally trained on, on any of those or, you know, um, in storytelling, I was trained, you know, in, in, in telling a story, visually right mm-hmm. so so in 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 photography and in graphic design okay. it's all about communication you know and it's all about um having you know the desire to your desired communication understood by your desired audience right visually and often with with language yeah um so in that way i did but i feel that a lot of you know i also feel you know i've been listening a lot you do as a parent uh that we're, we're inundated with you know malcolm gladwell and all of these like what is you know, how to succeed, what is genius, what is, and I, and I heard something really, really interesting recently, and I'm terrible at this. I'm not going to remember who said it, but you know, they talked about the, the percentage of sort of the marriage of like, you know, what you're successful in is a marriage of what you have a predisposition for Mm -hmm. as well as what you study. So, you know, I think that the Malcolm Gladwell said that thing, and I think it was uh, outliers about the 10,000 hours, which he's mm-hmm. sort of retracted because people kind of ran with it. And they sort of, I think they interpret it as anything you do for 10,000 hours, you're going to be Mozart at, you know, <laughs> and he said, and I think he back, retracted a little and said, you know, you also have to have sort of, because you're going to gravitate toward, toward things you're good at. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's also, that's a huge part, right? If you want to do something very badly and you're constantly hitting a wall, you're probably going to shy away from it. But if you want to do something very badly and you also happen to have a little bit of a gift for it, you know, mm-hmm. you still need those 10,000 hours, but you're definitely going to gravitate towards that. So I think I do have a gift for language and a gift for storytelling. I have a gift for sort of expression and I really, truly love it. I do. I, I It's just one of those things that I, you know, I have friends who are, and I work in different different countries, and so I'm, you know, always working at odd times. 
And I often have friends who are like, wow, doesn't that bother you? And I'm like, no, I get up and I'm very excited to do what I do most of the time. So it's a good thing. Nice. I mean, I, I always want to make sure that our listeners uh, can find you on, on the internet as well. Do you have a website where they can find about your out about your work or about um, your latest I project? I have a LinkedIn. It's yeah. Kelly Nascimento, and my uh, uh, Instagram is I am Kelly Nascimento. Mm-hmm. And then you know my other, and I can't believe I didn't say this, but you know part, one of my passions, and it's only because we haven't really fully started it, is the Nascimento Foundation, which mm. I founded, and it's nascimentofoundation.org. And it is to, and so I guess I actually, strangely enough, um, this is the first actual project that I've done with football is the Mm -hmm. film that I, that I'm directing. And it's, it's going to be like a, you know, a 20 year endeavor because so many things keep happening as anyone who's tried to do something an independent film knows. But, um, but it was the first time that sort of I really and I came from storytelling. I met uh, I have a, my brother-in-law is also Brazilian. He actually married my husband's sister. They're both New York, New Yorkers. And uh, he is a coach in New York and he travels to Brazil and has the path for the past, like, I guess, 20 years with a lot of his team, his players. You know, he's a youth coach and, you know, he takes a cultural trip with players and parents, whoever wants to go. And um, about six years ago, he little more almost, he came back from one of his trips and he said, Kelly, I saw this girl. He only tra- trains boys only because that's what gravitates to him. And the teams he trained, Manhattan Soccer Club, they were all boys. And he he always takes the, the, the kids that he takes to Brazil to a team in a favela because they have their own infrastructure. They have their own tournaments. They have their own teams that's you know very organized. And this one year he came back and he just called me and he said, I met, you know, there was this girl playing in the middle of the boys. She was amazing. She was incredible. You know, I want to try to help get her to a, to maybe a junior college in New York for a couple of years, because, you know, if she stays in Brazil, she's never going to, never going to make it, you know, as a player. And I never thought much about football. You know, I, 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 to the extent that I thought about where the play, where the great players were, you know, where did Neymar go? Where did, you know, Gunsu go? Where did these guys go? Yeah. So that's when I started sort of researching, you know, I, you know, like, why would you say that from the country of football? I mean, I absolutely knew that there was a very sexist country. There was a very patriarchal country. I also knew that women's sports, women's sports were not, there were definitely women's sports that were very popular. Basketball was very popular. Volleyball was very popular, but there was no women's, you know, soccer that I could um, remember being extremely popular. Mm. Um, and so I started doing some research and I was kind of shocked by what I found. And so I thought, wow, this is a story. And I, I was also uh, really, what really uh, interested me most was how, um, and I and I researched not just in Brazil, but I started looking into women's football, you know, globally. Mm-hmm. And I started making a connection between the situation for women in these individual, in individual countries and how they were reflected in the sport. Really specifically, with a lot of specificity that wasn't just like, you know, generalized uh, Mm -hmm. uh, sexism. It was very specific type of sexism. Like in Brazil, you know, all of almost the barriers had to do with the expectations for women in that particular culture. And I thought that's really interesting. And what could we learn if we really looked at this? Right. And, and how could we like broach these difficult subjects if we did it through sport, Mm -hmm. which makes it a lot more palatable, right. And easier to talk about. I thought, well, maybe, you know, we should tell, 
this should, this should be a story. Like people would want to hear this. Mm-hmm. I think people, you know, would want to hear this as a subject, not even just as football. And then I thought, well, I should tell this story, right? I mean, I tell stories and how great if I told the story, because mm-hmm. it'll mean a lot more people will listen just because of who my father is. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I started making this film. And that's when I started really, uh, you know, before that, a lot of my work in storytelling was in, in race and, and gender also, but a lot with children, you know, um, and um, so this kind of um, gave me sort of a deep dive into the world of sports, uh, sports diplomacy and sports for development. And so that's where I am today. And so wow. and, and yeah, it sort of merged all of my yeah. interests and all of my history. Yeah. And when do you hope the, the film will be done? <laughs> I, I hoped last year and then I hoped this year. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm hoping we just lost our editor. Uh, oh, she had it, family issues. And mm-hmm. so, which, you know, it's one of those, and we've had these blows, which I'm, I know that everyone who's ever tried to make a film on their own, you know, knows this. So um, now I'm hoping I'm aiming for, you know, 2023 is the women's world cup in mm-hmm. Australia. So I'm hoping for end of this year, beginning of next, you know, around next year, maybe spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to, we need to, so now I'm working on this other, a couple of other things that I really need to focus on and then I'll get back on it and I need to raise some more money and find a new editor and, you know, okay. all of that. But I'm hoping like by the end of the summer, September, the stuff that I'm working on will be set, be established and sort of settled. And then I'll be able to focus a little more on the film again. So the, the film is part of a project of the foundation or... Actually, no, it's, it's separate. Um, the film is, uh, basically it's a, it's, it's very a narrative Mm -hmm. story of this young girl and through her story and through telling her story and the story of a a few other young women around the world, we, we learn the story of football. So it's not a Mm -hmm. very, I want it to be for every age Mm -hmm. and I want it to be very beautiful and very much a story as opposed to, you know, it is a documentary, but it's very much a story. So it's not, uh, just tons of, um, facts you know so i do want it we also the film is also has um has partnerships with five sports for for development organizations and gender uh based organizations that will then be able to use the film in different ways to raise money so one is un women uh coaches across continents Mm -hmm. uh equality league global goals world cup and um lead edu which used to be lead africa but they just changed to lead edu and those five organizations Uh, we have MOUs with them so that they can use sections of the film or, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they all have their own different ways that they want to benefit from it. Um, so, yeah. So we want, I wanted it very much to be a, uh, a tool, right. Not just, you know, mm-hmm. a story that is all, you know, a, a beautiful story that entertains, which is primarily what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then also be able to be a tool for organizations to use for their work. Great. I, I'm really looking forward to it. And, and, you know, why, when you were explaining about, um, you know, that the way the girls and, and soccer, you know, were related was different per country. It had to do with the country and the context. Did you read the book, How Soccer Explains the World? No. Okay. You, I think you should check that out because there are, it, it's, it's also interesting, you know. And, yeah, and, and I will. I'm going to write it. A, out, a kind of as a, as a background piece of information yeah. while you're looking at, at making your film. Um, 
Yeah, I mean it's it's um, fascinating. So so um, you know, I just did a TED talk, by the way. I just did a TED talk. Oh, you did released. Uh, I think this week, uh, beginning of next week, and okay. I'll send it to you. It's in and uh, it's called "Sports Diplomacy and the Untapped Power in Women's Stories." Um, if you think about the seventeen sustainable development goals. Um, what would you like the world to know about about them? You know, what is the first thing you you think? Oh, you know, you should look at this particular goal, or you you know, or you should do this and this. But yeah, reflect a little bit on well, that. I mean, so yeah, I, I, it, there are so many ways to think about this. You know, in different levels, right? I think so. Let's just say I live in New York, right? And uh, and um, I went to the United Nations School, and you know, back in the day, and I know for a fact because I've worked, you know, in with the United Nations in different uh, in different ways since, and I know for a fact that most Americans and American children, even the ones who go on, you know, the New York schools who go on tours of the United Nations, don't know what the global goals are. So I think that the first thing would be like, you know, get the global goals in some way into the curriculum of your schools. Right. And I know that there's one organization and maybe, you know, who this is, I actually met this person. I'm ter- I could not find his card afterwards. I met him at, I, I did a, a presentation at the Yale soccer conference and I met him there. He uh, runs a, a non-for-profit organization that is, that works with uh, public schools where he has curriculum around the, the, the sustainable goals and he helps teachers weave it into almost any subject matter. So he can help them weave it into science or, or social studies or, you know, in a way that's not overburdening for them. And I did, could not, cannot for the life of me find him. He works in the, you know, he works also with the UN, but um, that's what I would say. Find a program that weaves this into the curriculum because it's really, really important. And um, it's an amazing way for you, for, for every individual to learn about the things that affect their lives, right? And about the, because they seem so heady sometimes and so far away from us because we don't make those connections of, you know, this, you know, this costs more because of this, right? Or, you know, what what does the Ukraine mean, right? So people see Ukraine for the first time, you know, or or they've heard it before before but haven't really associated with all the grain right like they they see ukraine and they're like well ukraine and russia so far they don't see the collateral sort of domino effect that it has globally and i think we've we you know we we've come so far away from that but i think you know not to 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 beat a dead horse as they say but mm-hmm. you know i i do believe and i say this and i say this all the time and i really like saying it because i really truly believe it I don't believe that goal five, you know, that that coming to a, a resolution in, in gender equality is going to give you a solution for all of the goals. Mm-hmm. But you will not have a solution for any of the goals unless you handle gender inequality. It is such a huge burden on every goal. And I'm not, you know, and when you say gender equality often, and even when I'm speaking to younger people too, you know, everyone thinks of like, you know, just straight sort of very sort of, you know, feminism, but it's not just about feminism. You know, obviously it's about the, you know, and especially here, like, you know, we're in a first world country and many of the people I speak to, you know, that you think about like the right to be able to do whatever you want to do with your life. Yes, that's absolutely it. But it's just, you know, when you go to certain, you know, the, the, the countries that are most affected you know, detrimentally by these issues are the countries often that have most restrictions on women. 
And they're also the country where countries where women are, it falls on women, the burden of many of these things, you know, meaning that they are the often the experts on many of these things. And, and mostly there are no women trying to solve any of these problems. And so I do feel that sort of the gender equality that I'm talking about is women being able to own land, like the 30%, um, you know, uh, gap in farming for women being able to get seeds and, you know, all of that, all of those things that affect greatly our, our ability to come to a resolution in these goals have to do with the fact that we don't have enough of our population in many, many parts of the world working on solutions and being able to be active participants in solving some of these problems simply because of gender issues. So I do feel that it's really, really, really important. It's not that I have blinders onto the mm -hmm. other issues, but I think it's a key. You know, I really do think it's a turnkey, you know, uh, that I feel like a lot of the times when I'm sitting in these rooms and I think maybe, you know, I, I'm, I'm also more attuned to this, but I feel like a lot of times I'm sitting in these rooms in the UN and there's all these conversations, really brilliant people finding brilliant solutions mm -hmm. to a lot of these goals. There are always solutions to try to sidestep the issue of gender equality. It's almost like, how do we make bread without flour? You know what I mean? And so we're spending all this time and money trying to figure out how to do things and not have to deal with that. But I get it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's cultural. It's overwhelming. It's sometimes it's a it's a huge barrier. But I really just believe that there was, there was more sort of attention, focused attention in education and in really focusing on that. We would really be able to chop off a lot of our effort in you know, trying to do things without addressing it. Going back to, to the movie you're making and, and you, you, you know, you alluded to how soccer or football is, is being um, uh, looked at. And especially if, if girl uh, players have, have an opportunity to play it, is there a relation to, you know, how well they are doing on, on goal number five? As oh, well? absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you give an example? of? of um, uh, well, I'll give you an example. What, what So it's not, Yes, absolutely. In fact, the countries where women are, you know, have more rights and more and 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 more equality are the countries with the better teams, right? And um, and that is because it all it's all connected, right? So you look at, you know, you look at uh, unpaid labor, right? And you look at sort of countries that are, you know, that are in sort of below the poverty line, right? So. Girls and boys, to the extent that girls get to go to school, girls and boys come home, boys drop their backpacks and run to play something, mm -hmm. usually football. Girls come home and they have to help clean, help cook, take care of the babies, take care of the, you know, and then if there's time and they're not exhausted and all of that was unpaid. And if there's time and they're, there's time and they're not exhausted, um, they get to go do something they like. Maybe it's playing football. And if, you know, maybe if there's no sort of cultural already sort of barrier and, and prejudice towards girls, you know, being active, they go play football or do something else, but rarely is there enough time. Now this is, you know, not only is this sort of unfair and, and, and also, you know, play is a really important part of development, but also this reflects on everything else, right. That, that in every, everything else where women who, and I'll give you an example, I think two thirds of the world's sort of water, um, is is procured by women so women are responsible right right and there's maybe 0.7 percent of women working in 
uh, infrastructure for for water and and uh, you know hydraulic systems and mm-hmm. and so I think that that is because they don't have time. Like right, this is the same. So so what happens with football is that's how you can see mm-hmm. this is also what how is she going to study? There's no time for her to study. There's no time for her. There's so much work for her to do. And it's actual valid work. It's not really that. And that's what I mean by sometimes gender equality gets, you know, is perceived as sort of a, 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 you know, it is not just about her being able to do what she wants. It's about her to be able to being able to be of service to the, to the, to the global crises, as opposed to just doing what she's told is, is her lot in life. Right. And so that's, that's how also football mirrors everything else. There's no time, hmm. you know, and then in, I'll give you an example in Brazil In Brazil, a lot of the time, this, these, the same thing happens in that respect, but also Brazil, the barrier is cultural, right? Women are supposed to be um, feminine and beautiful, or at least try and, um, and soft and just, you know, and anything that you want to do, you can, as long as it doesn't get in the way of those things. Mm-hmm. So anything that might be perceived to get in the way of those attributes that are expected of women, that you know, is 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 frowned upon. And 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 then what happens? Like as a mom, and that's the thing that's that's interesting is that I didn't find a lot of parents who were angry that their daughters were playing or didn't want their daughters to play. I found a lot of parents who were afraid that their daughters would get hurt, that their daughters would be discriminated against, that their daughters would become emasculated and would you sort of then not be marryable that their daughters, right. There wasn't anything like there was no particular um, anger against the game itself mm. and they, or against exercise. It was all sort of trying to protect them from cultural perceptions and sometimes religious perceptions that are misguided religious perceptions, because even in the Quran, you know, they, they're told that we are told that women need to exercise and should exercise. Right. So, but, you know, as we know, they, these things get manipulated uh, and have through, through centuries for whatever the needs are. So that was something really interesting to me. So much, so many of the interviews that I conducted had, you know, many family members who really wanted them to do what they, what they wanted, but were afraid. I, I would would like to um, introduce um, the inner development uh, goals to you, and um, because I, I I really think you know you when I was listening to you and the examples that you gave you 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 looking at gender equality you know that's a system you know change you would like to see, mm-hmm. um, and then you came up with you know. The communities that are struggling with challenges and and individuals as well. So the inner development goals uh, they have been developed recently as a result of a survey that was done among you know more than a thousand people around the world. And basically, uh, what they said you know one of the reasons that now for the second year in a in a row uh, we did not make any progress on our SDGs also has to do with the fact that we. Uh, did not pay it are not paying attention to individual capabilities capacities um, that are necessary to you know work on those goals and, and make those changes and as a community as well. So as a result of the survey that they done they did they came up with five inner development goals. The first is being, the second is 
thinking, the third is relating, the fourth is collaborating, and the fifth is action. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you have heard about the inner development goals, but um, I, I would like to hear your reaction to this, you know, about the fact that uh, it's great that we have those 17 sustainable development goals, but we also need to work on those five inner development goals as individuals and as community. And those, you know, if we if we start working on them, then we can make more uh, progress. I um I actually looked into it. I, I looked into your email mm -hmm. and I, I did some research. I I don't know that I fully understand, but I think I do. I don't think that's a very complicated concept. It's very sort of I think um it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, so I, and I don't know if this is, um, if this is what you mean, I think, I think this is, might, might be what you mean, but I agree a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent. And recently I, um, you know, I love when I have these sort of first, you know, I, I really do love what I do, but what I worked with, um, MIT react and Namal, uh, with this, uh, uh, migrant summit that they had for a mm -hmm. month. And I did it where I, I, um, worked with, they wanted to center the voice of the refugee. And so they wanted to bring in refugees to tell their stories if possible during the summit. And it was a really wonderful idea, but, and, and, and they, they're wonderful and their, their heart was in the right place. And it was the first time they were trying this. And, you know, as you, I think, you know, it, it is not, it's not a, a simple thing to ask someone to tell their story. And often, sometimes people want to tell their stories, but, you know, so much happens when you start opening up those, those things that you shut back to be able to survive again. Mm -hmm. And it was really an incredibly powerful experience for me. I worked with three refugees uh, trying to get their story into shape. And it was, you know, you know, trying to get their, them to be able to feel confident and to, to sort of, you know, synthesize what their, their story into a powerful and impactful sort of, you know, uh, poignant uh, uh, few minutes. And um, it was really unbelievable across the board. And then another friend of mine who's also, you know, works in storytelling, worked with three other or four other refugees. And we worked, we talked frequently almost every day because it was truly overwhelming. It was overwhelming because it just is over. I mean, it was overwhelming for me. I can't even imagine what it was for some, you know, I, I, there was one wonderful man who really couldn't go to work for two days after he talked to me. And he said he was the first time he was seeing the whole thing start to finish. And then he had such a crippling migraine that he couldn't leave his house for two days. You know, and he says it happens. It has happened before when he tried, you know, this other one said, I can't, I, I'm not going to be able to say this because, you know, in my country, I, you know, it is very, very bad for a man to cry. And I don't think I'll get through this, you know, and what, you know, and, I, and it's something I already knew. And I think we all know, but it was so incredibly prevalent that what we desperately need is mental health. Health. Yeah. Right. And we, we. And there's so much focus. And a lot of what Namal is, a really good friend of mine has this incredibly wonderful organization called Namal. And they they educate refugees so that in IT so they can work remotely from refugee camps and you know keep working and making money. And and she it's incredible, but it just it's just in every aspect. And we, there were some incredible organizations that came together for the summit. There is so desperately little attention to mental health. Mm. And what happens is these incredible people are taken from, you know, all these things happen to them. And then they are, you know, then the, 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 the attitude or the, or the, the focus is on, you know, getting them back to being productive, 
for their own health and, you know, not just, you know, but getting them back to sort of earning money to try to get them out of the situation they're in. But it's almost impossible to just move on after the things that these people have been through. These people who were just basically lawyers and doctors and, and scientists and, 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 you know, bakers and just do minding their own business, living their lives, you know, and went through unspeakable things. Mm-hmm. And now they're getting incredible aid to get back up on their feet. But rarely does this aid address the things that you were talking about, you know, mm-hmm. and the integral. So um, I very much think it's incredibly important. I think it's just, you know, we don't, we have to start looking when we talk about our health and we talk about sort of, you know, even your like walk, talk, listen, when we talk about the hundred miles, like it's, it's wonderful, but we have to start seeing our mental health really, really sort of inextricably from our, our physical health. Mm-hmm. And we really don't yet, you know, we talk a lot about it, we, it, but it's, it's always almost seen as a, a luxury a little bit, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or an extra. And I think it has to be just as important as, you know, stretching or mm-hmm. taking vitamin C or, you know, uh, and that's how it has to get, because otherwise you're right. There's very little we can do because the world today is, you know, 90% of the world is traumatized in some way. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and we're not dealing with it at all. You know, we're just sort of focused on, and I'm very much like that, right? You know, I'm, I'm very much like, you know, tell me how, you know, like, don't, you know, just tell me the problem, you know, and then I'll, you know, tell me, don't, don't give me like, you know, yeah. tell me what it is and I'll find a way, you know, I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, you know, it, and, and it's still that way, but we often overlook, you know, the, the toll that our, you know, that our mental health takes on our bodies, on our, life on how we relate to people and how productive we are on how, you know, how we parent, mm-hmm. right? How we raise children with, you know, trauma because of our trauma. Um, Kelly, you, you, you mentioned the hundred mile and that's, you know, this, this podcast is a spin-off of my hundred mile uh, walk where I try to raise and uh, awareness and funds for uh, to end hunger, poverty, and injustice. If you would be asked to walk 100 mile in a week, so 15 to 20 miles uh, per day, for which cause would you walk and why? Oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> um, there's so many. Um, so I think because I have, you know, adolescent children. A 17-year-old boy that uh, in New York, right? That's starting to drive. Two daughters, 19 and 20, uh, 20 and 21. Sorry, who you know are always out and and driving and taking the subways. And then I have an 11-year-old who hasn't yet. But I think you know, I guess personally, um, I would <clears throat> I would do it for police reform right now mm. because I I seriously don't sleep at night. I, I probably could do a hundred miles a week for the rest of my life, you know, and just at a cause a week, but today, and that's just from the top of my head. Like, you know, if you would tell me like, what, you know, what do I spend most of my time? I think I would do it for either for police reform, gun reform, mm-hmm. um, you know, just one of those sort of, you know, the things that literally every day, every moment of the day is, yeah. is in the forefront of my 
you know, if I could, if I could remove that, I'd be so much more productive <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> if yeah. I could remove that. <laughs> I, I, and I, I totally understand. I mean, you know, my organization celebrated its 75th anniversary last year. And one of the, you know, we use this time to also kind of reflect how did we do on these topics and, you know, how can we do better? What did we do well? And one big topic is for us is, is racial justice, you know, um, what did we actually do and, and could we have done better? And um, if I ask you to look at the NGO sector as a whole, and of course, there are so many different NGOs out there, but I still ask you to kind of, you know, make a statement about the NGO sector as a whole. How did the NGOs do in terms of racial justice? You know, activities lifting say, it up, uh, living I, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly could not say because I really don't, mm-hmm. you know, I... I I do still think that there, I think there's a lot of good work out there. I do still think that a lot of it, you know, it's difficult. It is really difficult because it's not that it's anybody's necessary, you know, yes, there's a lot of, a lot of times it's like, there are a lot of different levels of issues, right? But I think one of the main issues is that it is, it's a difficult, tricky thing because the majority of the people even who have to take the initiative are not affected directly by this. They're not people of color. They're not, you know, and, and that's okay. That's fine because there's tons of allies and there are people. However, it definitely presents a problem, right? I mean, if we had people who were directly affected, you know, thinking up these, you know, there's, and there's often, there's not even a person of color in the room, right? When these things come up. So it is no matter how, you know, well-meaning you are, right? I mean, I can tell you right now, I could, you know, I, I, I am all for sort of, you know, stop Asian hate. But sitting in a room, I don't, I mean, I would absolutely 100% do my best and I will fight for, you know, for, for equality for everyone, you know, until the day I die, but I'm not the right person to sit in a room and try to find, you know, the ultimate person for even my organization to try to find a resolution for Asian hate. You know what I mean? Me, myself, I would say, okay, well, look around the room. Do we have anyone Asian? We need to get some Asian people in here to talk, you know what I mean? To, to, to talk about what the issues are. And I think that that's a problem in a lot of the NGOs in the, in the rooms that are make decisions. And I think that one, that's one thing that Beyond Sport does really well, who I work with a lot. And mm-hmm. they, they had this, um, they, you know, we worked on, uh, uh, you know, who else does a great job? Um, uh, Dick Sporting Goods, Dick Sporting Goods Foundation does incredible work with, with, uh, uh, you know, they, meaning that this is what they do. They're like, look, this is the amount of money we have. Who do, who do we know that is going to be able to do, you know what I mean? To help us do this. So they, you know, they funded, they gave a huge grant to Beyond Sport. And as I'm, I'm one of their, uh, I'm on their board. And what we did, what they did was they, they uh, had, they allowed uh, many, many uh, uh, youth sports uh, nonprofit organizations uh, uh, apply for the grant, and the 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 grant was you know that you wanted to do more for you know in in your organization and with your demographic towards racial equality, and and that you were already doing something, but you really needed help, and the help wasn't just money. The help was you know we are in Memphis and we're all white. We are in blah, 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 and we do this, but we want it. And so, and we got all together, we did a selection, we found five of them. And together we, we came up with this really amazing, and I'll send it to you. It's called Real. And I forget, I forget the acronym. I'm going to forget and I'm terrible. I'm going to look it up. But basically it is a, um, it is a, in real time, 
uh, a survey that you can take, inner survey that you, you don't have to share with anybody, but in real time, you can answer these questions that, that change as you, as you answer them about that, that are very, you know, we came up with the questions altogether that address how you're doing. And then it gives you suggestions in areas that you're not doing so well on how to go forward. Because that was we found that after we interviewed all of these organizations, that was the thing is that not only did they not know if they were doing the right thing, but they didn't know how to change, how to move, you know, short of firing everybody and hiring people of color. You know, you don't want to do that. You have people who are doing a good job and you they really want to, they want their organization to reflect the the, the popu- population that they serve. And often that's not the case. And so, yeah, and, and the, so that was really impactful and it can be used by anyone. It's up, it can be used by any, and it was specifically so for, for youth sports, but, um, but it's really a great rubric that can be used for any organization. You know, it's like gender fair in a way. I don't know if you know the, the uh, right. So they, they come mm-hmm. in and uh, so, and I think it's really great because they can be used right now. It's for youth sports, but I feel like it's something that can be used in almost any organization if you want to just track yourself to see how you're doing. You know what I mean? And, and eventually, I would love to see something like this be almost like uh, with gender and 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 uh, uh, you know um, racial equality. I love it to be almost like a uh, food and beverage or food. What is it called? That that the grade. You know, like if I'm going to work with an NGO. I want to see how you measure up in those, you know what I mean? What mm-hmm. you're doing. So, you know how restaurants have the ABC grades out yeah, there, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. in terms of cleanliness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to know, and it's not that I want to know that you have to prove to me that you are completely, but I want to know that you're working towards it and actually, actually doing something about it. So I'm, you know, if you're filling out a grant, let's say from me, I would love to, you know, that that would be a question for me, right? Where do you measure up in this scale of what you've been doing in the, since the time you started? You know, you started like a year ago and you've been trying really hard. And you still, that's not, I think, a mark against you. Mm-hmm. But if you've been going for 10 years and you still, your boardroom still looks, does not reflect the people that you serve, then, you know, I want to know that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that that's the kind of thing that you, and I think you should want to know that, right? Of your own, right? Because you're old, you're going to do your job better if you reflect the community you serve. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think, yeah. So I can't speak for all. I know that some of them are doing a lot of, but I think that is still the barrier is that, mm. you know, you need people who are impacted uh, to help make decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and a remark that I often make and, and I understand that it might not always possible is you always need to look at, at um, or try to look at that uh, decisions are made as close as possible to the point of impact and you know if you keep that in mind yeah. that's that's definitely yeah. um, important at least which, that's my my opinion yeah which by the way is the same with gender equality right what we were mm-hmm. saying about goal 5 right you yeah. want uh, you want people who are finding solutions to be the people who are most impacted mm-hmm. who are most deal with that issue every day yeah right yeah. otherwise you're you know you're finding solutions for other people's problems which is mm-hmm. you know as brilliant as you are is still there's a barrier You were talking about your children and, you know, your worries about it. Um, I, I, I would like to talk and, you know, youth has come up during this conversation. I would like to talk about the youth because I often talk about 
the youth, the next generations uh, during my walks as well. And then um, because I think, you know, in walking, there is, you get a kind of an, a spiritual experience because you, <laughs> you're just walking, yes, and walking, you know, your yeah. mind goes. So we talk about spirituality and religion. Um, and, and then often we, we talk about, oh, you know, this next generation is changing. And uh, although some people say, no, they're still the same. They're searching for the same. They might be less interested in institutionalized religion, but otherwise they're the same. My question to you is, what do you see happening uh, in your, you know, around you with youth and, and religion and spirituality? I, it's interesting. I think I'm, I'm a little bit... Uh... I have my kids who are very, very normal sort of teens and 20 and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I also, but they also, but I'm also their mom. Right. And then the other youth that I'm surrounded by are usually young people who are much more aware just because of the nature of what I do. Right. Mm -hmm. Not just because, so I, so, but I, um, and I talk about this a lot in terms of branding and, you know, brand storytelling and stuff like that. I think that I find that I'm really inspired and really hopeful for the this generation. And, and even the last one. And I, and I feel that's because I worry about them because I think that they were inundated with information before their, like, you know, their frontal lobe is had a chance to, you know, develop. And I think that that's where a lot of the conflict comes in. It's just too much. But I also know that they are, it's interesting. I don't know how to put this. So I grew up with, you know, several religions around me and I, to me, it is I've always been extremely spiritual. My, you know, I grew up, my mother was a Christian spiritualist. My dad didn't really grow up Catholic, but my grandmother is very Catholic. I, interestingly enough, I am extremely spiritual, but have always, for some reason, the, the, I've always seen, and I think that I don't know if this is particular in Brazil, but just the greatest amount of hypocrisy especially in people who call themselves very religious. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I see, yes, I absolutely think that the kids today are much less religious. And I think that, and I'm trying to get there, like, in a, I wish I'd had more time to sort of, but here's the thing. When I talk about storytelling and I talk about branding, right. And I talk mm -hmm. about people who are trying to sort of, you know, and I, even with the film that I was doing, that I'm doing, and we talk about connecting ourselves with brands, right. Uh, for the for the release of the film. And I'm always very careful because I always say, you know, I always tell people, you can no longer just act like you are woke as a brand because the kids see through the bullshit. Mm -hmm. They are much smarter than we were just because of the influx, you know, the incredible deluge of information that they get. They're not satisfied anymore with, you know, a commercial that is really inclusive. You know, they know how to find what your boardroom looks like. They know how they see immediately because of social media and the speed at which information travels, what you're all about, right? This is why I also see them, you know, for, the, for this reason, I also believe that there is why they're not um, very tied or less and less tied to traditional religion, right? Mm -hmm. Is because they, I think a lot of the, and I, and I, by the way, I am a huge, I don't want to say fan, but even though I have this incredible bias with like, you know, especially people who, you know, I find that there are the most judgmental and righteous or the people who really are married to their to religion. I also don't think that that's necessarily true as an adult. I know, you know, I mean, I am, I see firsthand how incredibly powerful and beautiful religion can be. 
right? I have Muslim friends, I have Jewish friends, I have, you know, Christian friends, and I, I really see how powerful and how much good it can do, right? And, and especially in a country like Brazil, we're often misguided, especially with like, you know, I find evangelism and those televangelists who like make millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. I see the absolute need for people to have something, especially in countries like Brazil, where there's such incredible poverty in other countries. I 100% understand the absolute need for religion and how much good it can do. But I also see in, you know, in our world today, how my kids are like, are you kidding me? Because the religion that they see, mm-hmm. right, is the religion that allows young boys to get killed and all and bans abortion, which they see, by the way, at their age, that it has to a lot to do with economics and racial inequality than it does with actually saving a life when they refuse to regulate guns. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's what they see of religion, at least, you know, so... I think that that's the huge disconnect. I don't know, but I don't find that they're not spiritual. I find that they're very spiritual, even mm-hmm. when they don't know that they're spiritual, right? I find that a lot of their the, the conversation that they have, you know, I think that are, are is very uh, guided towards like inner work, even when they don't know they're saying that, you know, mm-hmm. and and guided towards sort of intuition rhetoric that they use is not sort of organized, you know, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's all it's very much. How do I how do I say this? Sort of, I knew this was the right thing, Hmm. right? I could, you know, like they they often talk about the universe, right, as opposed to like the the force. So they're finding their way to spirituality, Mm -hmm. and I feel like religion has failed them in a way. So I don't think it's Mm -hmm. their fault. I really do. I think that religion has failed them. I think if you're in a country where you're not starving, right, or you're or in a country in in a in a in a demographic where you're not starving and you don't desperately need religion to sort of cling to something then and you can and you have sort of the ability to be more skeptical and ask more questions i do find that religion doesn't really um it's not really a place where you know they they want a lot of questions mm-hmm. and that you know so it's all a problem and it's it's really interesting to me i do i am curious how that will how that will play out um you know in the future it's it's really interesting i i, I just i feel that um i i've seen I have, I have friends that I've seen who, who are, I wouldn't say completely religious, like very, very religious, but definitely adhere to their religion and who are really brilliant about talking to their kids. And I really admire that, you know, who can actually, you know, and I, who are able to contextualize their religion in really brilliant ways that are, that aren't hypocritical. To, to a child, you know what I mean? Who's going through all of that questioning and, you know, and I find that really, but they're, the, but, you know, but they're not. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen it, I've seen it and I, and I, I, I really admire it. Um, and, and I think it comes from a place where I don't know, I think maybe they were introduced to religion that way. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so that's everything I see. I haven't really mm-hmm. made sense of a lot of it or I, and I can't really predict. Um, but I actually think that, you know, to me, I I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with like, I think religion is great. And I think if, you know, here's another thing that I think that I've told my kids also religion is like marriage or like anything else it has. I personally believe it doesn't have a power in and of itself. Religion is what you bring to it. So if you are a hypocrite, you are going to embrace religion with your hypocrisy. If you're a person who is truly spiritual and truly and truly feels what you feel and are true to yourself and true to what you believe and you know are empathetic and kind, you're going to bring that to your religion, right? I don't believe that religion works the other way. 
I don't believe marriage, you know what I mean? It's like marriage. Mm -hmm. Marriage in and of itself is nothing, right? And I always tell my kids, marriage is a celebration of a good, really, of a, of a wonderful relationship. It's not going to make a relationship good. You know, religion is not going to make you good, right? It may guide you and through, through parts where you feel lost, but you're going to bring who you are to whatever institution you subscribe to, right? So, and I think that that's, you know, so I, I, I don't know if they will eventually embrace a religion that they can bring all of this curiosity and, and um, passion to. I hope, you know, I hope if, it, if they need it, they do, you know? But yeah, I think that's, does that make sense? No, I, I, I am, you know, I'm absorbing it. I, I think it's beautiful what you said. So, so I, I also think that the listeners will appreciate it. I would like to bring you to um, somewhere else, which is important for me, music. Um, so the question that I uh, always ask to my guests as well is if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best, you know, describes or embodies of who Kelly is, uh, which song or piece of music would that be and why? Oh my gosh, I know. I saw that question. There's no, that's, <laughs> I dread it. I love, I am one of those people who, uh, you know, music is one of the things that can change, you know, can change my mood from, you know, I mean, I, I can't like, I can't even read or work with music because I feel like it's such a force, you know, mm -hmm. I cannot tell you one piece of music. I, I have a, I have genres of music for different. I don't know. I can't tell Some you. People one. cheat and they come up with two or three. So I, I can give you that. Yeah, I mean, I can give you a genre. Well. I can give you a, a okay. I know uh, it's okay. So You're gonna have to go for it's it. Not gonna, and I and I actually I'm gonna look it up because the name of the song is not what we, everybody calls the song. The, there's a famous line from it, and everybody calls the song by that name, but it's not. You know, it's, it's interesting. Brazilian music often has very obscure names. The songs, mm -hmm. you know, and people know them by the song of the the name of the refrain, but it's called Ukiye Ukiye. Okay, a very popular old song. But um, so, why do you pick this song? Because I, I think because the song is about uh, embracing life and living life, and um, and it's about sort of um, that it's about being an eternal apprentice, almost an eternal you know student of life. It's a very joyful song, and um, it's about living and not being embarrassed to be happy. It's a it's a weird you know uh, translation. Um, It's about, uh, it really is about like life can be very, very crappy and it can be very difficult and can be, you know, very uh, um, challenging, but rarely, right? I mean, aside from some very tragic cases, you know, percentage wise, rarely do we, when the question is asked, decide not to keep it, right? Because there's always hope and there's always, you know, and it's, so it's a very, yeah, it's a very, um, I love the I love the line that that it, you know the the living is is a uh, beleza de ser um eterno aprendiz. So it's the beauty of being an eternal apprentice. And uh, yeah, so that to me sort of is pretty much you know it's one of it's it's that that thing about it's like um, 
someone said this once and I know it's often quoted and I think nobody really knows who said it because it's always quoted by other people, but it's find the things that bother you that will find, find the things that break your heart and then spend your life trying to fix them. You know? And so I think that that's, that's why I love that song so much. It's also really beautiful. You have to listen to it. It's a samba. It's really beautiful. I, I will. I, I will. One follow-up question. So, so have you have you always approached life like that? Um, and if not, when when did the shift happen? I don't remember a shift. You know, mm. I I don't remember a shift. I think I have always. You know, it's interesting. I, I I grew up very fast. I think because of the way my life was, I did. You know, I spent a lot of time with adults. Um, and when people always say it's so funny because you know we're you know especially with women like I'm I'm aging, but it's it's really funny. Because I have this friend, one of my really close friends is a writer and she's a wonderful writer. And she wrote this book called Formerly Hot. And it's about aging and about like that feeling of like becoming invisible, you know, and not being hot anymore. And not, you know, and like, and she's like, you know, you feel like you you just, you have that feeling that you're not, uh, you know, you just don't feel 20 anymore. And it's funny because whenever I hear people like that, I never felt 20. (laughs) (laughs) I was born like 45. (laughs) <laughs> and not in a bad way, but like, I really don't, I don't have that feeling. It's not because I feel like I am 20. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm not delusional. I just feel like I don't, you know, I, I've never felt, I feel like I, this is the age I was meant to be. Do you know what I mean? I was always so worried for a kid. You know, I was always so like, you know, I was always, I mean, I always had fun. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But I, you know, I remember my, uh, Yeah. I don't think there was a, I think I always did live like this. I I think I was very, I'm very, uh, I wouldn't say adventurous. I think it's sort of like, I'm a, I've always been a rip the bandaid kind of person. You know what I mean? Like just jump in the water, just jump. It's going to be cold. Just do it. You know, I've always had this incredible faith that, um, and I think my parents also, uh, are like this very much so that, you can't be foolish and you can't be sort of, you know, you can't be irresponsible, but for the most part, you know, you've, A, you can't cheat death and you're not going to die before you're supposed to, mm. you know, I believe that, I, which doesn't mean that I'm going to throw myself in a fire, you know what I mean? But I'm just saying like, you know, if, if there's, if you, I always, and I always, my, my thing to myself and I always tell my kids is what's the worst that could happen? Literally what's the worst that can happen, right? Mm-hmm. Aside from death, because if you're supposed to die and you don't go, you're just going to get hit by a car or you're, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, you're not going to be like, okay, well then I won't die. So I guess that's it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I, I think I've always been like that. Great. Um, we're almost to the end of our conversation, which I really enjoyed. Um, any last message, invitation or question for the audience, for the listeners? My wish, oh my gosh, I think my wish is that, um, I always read this and it seems so trite and it seems so much like a meme, but it's so important, I think. And I I tell my kids, because I think, I I read it and I've read it so many times, but if you really have to do it and you, and it's hard to do, but I think one of the things that I, that I, that I've been seeing a lot lately that I really love is when people say, you know, like, be kind to yourself. You know, like talk to yourself like you would talk to, you know, a young person that you, you know what I mean? Or, 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 or a young person that you, um, 
that you love. Talk to yourself like you would talk to a, to a, you know, a child that you love. And I, by a child, I don't mean, you know, but I mean that just be kind to yourself. I think mm-hmm. we don't, we don't think about that enough, especially in, in the sectors that we work in. I think we, um, we all, all over the world have that little voice, you know, that tells us mm-hmm. we're not doing enough or we're, you know, especially parents. Oh my God, I cannot tell you how much guilt I have on a daily basis about things that, you know, even things I have no control over. And I think that it's every once in a while, it's important to, to stop and say, you know what, you're doing a pretty good job, you know, be kind to yourself. I think you're, you're, you'll get further that way. Um, and you're better, you're better you if you're kind to yourself. Thank you so much, uh, Kelly, for your willingness to uh, talk with me today and share your, you know, your stories and experiences. And I wish you all the best with everything you do. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.